morning to everyone. Our guest preacher for today is Randy Harris. Randy is the author of the book, Living Jesus, Doing What Jesus Says in the Sermon on the Mount. A couple of our Midway communities are currently going through this book. Um, Randy uh, was a professor of mine many years ago when I was in college. And <clears throat> as we were going through this book, I reached out to Randy to see if he would be open to contributing a sermon to this series. And I was pleasantly surprised when he said yes. He mentioned to me when he responded how much uh, Mennonite spirituality had formed and shaped him. So we're going to do something a little different today. Right? This, this will actually come via video from Abilene, Texas, where Randy's from. Before he retired recently, he taught Bible, theology, philosophy, and preaching at Abilene Christian University. Uh, not long, I think, uh, maybe when I was there, but on his bio, if you look on Amazon, it says that he's frequently referred to as the only Church of Christ monk. So, and that was something that you will hear often in the Church of Christ about Randy. He's single, which would fulfill one of the requirements for being a monk, and he's a gentle, soft-spoken man who loves the contemplative life, which would also qualify him for uh, being the Church of Christ monk. Uh, he... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount has been a focus of Randy's for many years. Not long uh, after I left ACU, he began to a project where he would take every year a group of freshmen, and for three and a half years they would commit while they were uh, in university to living the Sermon on the Mount together. And so they would sign a covenant to do this. They had all these uh, practices they did in their community. And one of them, he'll, he'll mention this, I think, in his sermon, but it was memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. If you ever thought, memorizing the Sermon on the Mount is an amazing experience. It's not as hard as you think it would be. I just want to kind of put that out there. I, I, it's something to consider. It's, a, it's something that he'll mention. I would encourage you to consider. Uh, Randy, he's preached and taught around the world, and it's an honor for us to have him preach to us today. Thank you. Good morning. I'm very glad to be at the Midway Mennonite Church, even though it's by Zoom. I appreciate Matthew's invitation. The Mennonite tradition has been an enormous blessing to me through the years, and I consider it a great honor to be uh, with you for a few minutes, and especially uh, to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there is no passage of Scripture that's meant more to me through the years, and um, long after uh, Matthew uh, was a student at ACU, I started to require that all of my Bible and ministry majors memorize the sermon from beginning to end, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And, uh, of course, they would whine and complain about it. We don't spend a lot of time memorizing Scripture uh, anymore. And then at the end, they would always say that was the best assignment in the class. Um, those, those older brothers and sisters who, who taught us that when you memorize something, it has a way of crawling inside of you in a way that it doesn't if you just read it from a screen. Um, turns out they were, they were right. And uh, it, it became a part of uh, my students' lives. And they, they would occasionally say that even when I find myself being disobedient to the sermon, I find that I'm often thinking about it. That when I'm trying to make a decision about what to do or how to behave, that, that pieces of the sermon uh, will come back to me. 
And uh, here we are at the end of uh, chapter 5, verses uh, 43 through 47, uh, which is the sixth example of deep righteousness that Jesus gives, uh, contrasting his approach uh, to the righteous life with that of Pharisaical interpretation. Uh, this is not Jesus versus Moses. This is Jesus' interpretation of Moses versus the Pharisees' interpretation of Moses. And this is the last of the six examples. And it's interesting as you read through the six examples, you think, okay, that's really hard. That's really hard. That's really hard. And it just almost seems like it gets harder. And here you come to uh, the end and you think, okay, this is as hard as it gets. Um, so I want to uh, I want to just offer a few reflections on uh, this most challenging of uh, all of uh, Jesus' teachings. You have heard that it was said, "You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, love for enemies. Um, you'll be listening to this uh, after Thanksgiving, but I'm recording it uh, before. And like many of you, I'll be gathering uh, with family, and for the most part, that's a joyful occasion. I know it's not for everybody, but for most of us it is. Um, and it's a time we reflect on those who meant a great deal to us, to those who have loved us well and with whom we have done life uh, in a meaningful way. Uh, I'm guessing probably everybody, if you have your extended family go far enough or have an aunt or uncle, you might want to vote off the island, but uh, for the most part. This is a gathering of people who love each other. And uh, Jesus, in quite provocative ways, says, okay, when you love those people, that makes you exactly like every pagan in the world. Everybody loves the people of their family, or maybe they love the people of their clan or their tribe or their group. And, and when you love the people who return that love to you, um, that doesn't distinguish you from any pagan in the world. Everybody he does, does that. He says what marks Christians is that they love people who don't love them back. And even using the most provocative possible language, he says not only do you love people who don't love you back, you love people who are actively hostile to you what he describes as enemies. So let me offer a few reflections. 
one of the most interesting ways to read the Bible, of course, is to read the Bible as in conversation with itself. And when I read this passage, I can't help but think of a Hebrew Bible passage, an Old, an Old Testament uh, passage. Uh, and what it makes me think about is the book of Jonah, uh, where you have this reluctant prophet preacher who is ordered to go and preach to their the, the most extreme enemies that Israel has and to do it in a way that is going to result in their salvation. And um, the book of Jonah is famous for the, the stuff with the, with the great fish that swallows Jonah. It's an irresistible sort of Bible story. But all the important stuff in Jonah happens in the last chapter. Where Jonah, this reluctant preacher, has been unbelievably successful in Nineveh, the enemy city. Uh, the city has been saved, at least for the moment. And Jonah kind of goes and camps on the edge of town hoping that they will backslide and that God will nuke them. That's what he wants. And, and so God messes with Jonah. He, he gives him a, a hot, impossibly hot day to, to make him miserable, and he gives him a plant to supply him shade to relieve his misery, and then he gets a worm to kill the plant to make Jonah miserable all over again, and Jonah is wising, is is whining about his discomfort, and God says, "You you care more about this plant than you do all these people," and it's kind of a mic drop. End of book. And I don't suppose that, that, that Jesus is channeling Jonah, but anybody in a Hebrew audience would have a hard time not thinking about it. Those enemies, it's not Nineveh anymore. Now it's Rome, this occupying power. You, you want me to love these people who are subjugating my my state and taking all of my stuff with taxes. You want me to love them? And then we start to see just how provocative this passage is. Um, I've half joked that uh, I don't really have lots of enemies because you know you really have to have more going on than I do to have enemies. And I'm just not very interesting. And, um, you know, have, have, haven't made lots of enemies in the world. Um, but I can start to make the, the, the list of folks where, you know, if God says, you want me to nuke or not nuke, the world might be a better place without XYZ in it. It might be a better place if Nineveh wasn't there. So let me give you two personal experiences with this passage. Uh, I was preaching this uh, passage at the lectures at Pepperdine University several years ago. After I preached, uh, a man comes up afterwards and says, I would I'd like to talk to you about what you preach. So 
okay, you know, it's sometimes good for a preacher, but not usually. Uh, but he was pretty emotional. And I said, okay, tell me, tell me about it. And he said, my, my son was killed in, I believe it was the first war that was in the Middle East. Uh, and my heart was so filled with bitterness. Um, I found myself hating a whole group of people because they had killed my son. And yet this passage kept beckoning to me. Told you, you've, you've heard, you know, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. God sends rain and sunshine, both good and the evil. And if you, if you just love the people who love you back, that makes you like everybody else in the world. And so he said, I needed to do something. And for some reason, I don't remember, after these several years, he he lost his dentist. I don't know if his dentist had retired or moved or something. And he lived in a large metropolitan area on the West Coast. So he said, I went through the phone book looking for a dentist that had an Iraqi name. And I decided that I wasn't going to hate a whole group of people. I was going to find somebody and develop a relationship with them and learn to love. And I thought, no, they had the wrong guy preaching this passage today. This is the guy who should have preached, who understands that this call it kind of overcomes our first emotional reaction and asks us to do something in, in, in active ways to love the way God loves. Um, I also had the opportunity to teach this passage one time in a women's prison. And I, I do have to say there's something about reading the Sermon on the Mount in prison. Uh, people are going to be there for a while that makes you hear the passages differently. Uh, all of a sudden, you're having to rethink, okay, what does it mean to be to blessed are the meek? Because meek can get you killed uh, in prison. And um, the, the women that I, that I met there were, were deeply engaged in this study. They were asking the hardest possible questions. Um, and they wanted to know what it meant to, to love your enemies and... Uh, I don't know how much experience some of you have with prisoners, but I can tell you most of the women in that prison were there because of the uh, the abuse of a man. You know, mo most of them had been victimized by men who had taken advantage of them or used them. And not belittling what they did, some of them are a little bit scary, to be sure. You know, but, but one of them you know, killed the guy who was abusing her daughter, it was his stepdaughter, and she killed him. Now, now she's in prison for years and years and wants to know, okay, 
Um, do I have to love him? Because he's my enemy. What, what, is, what does it mean to, to love or express forgiveness uh, towards someone like that? Uh, and then we begin to see just how radical uh, the passage is. And then we start to pray, Lord, help me not to hate. Uh, help me not to give in to a world that's divided up into us and them and to always hate them. Uh, help, help me realize we're, we're all dumped together in the great us that have fallen short of, of God's gracious desires for us. Help me be healing in the world. Not one more scar. I do want to um, push just in one little place, uh, as I do in the book, beyond the, the, the express text. When, when he talks about loving your enemies and, and it says, okay, when, when you only love people who love you back, you're doing exactly what everybody else does. Uh, well, I may say, okay, I don't have lots of enemies, but uh, how about not the enemy? How about the irritant? Um, I have these people around me in my life who bless me and I'd love spending time with, but uh, how about the person whose only contribution to your life is irritation? Um, someone who's totally unself-aware. Uh, someone who is incapable of friendship. Uh, that the best you can hope for is to befriend them because they don't really know how to, how to do friend. What do we as individuals and what do we as communities of faith um, do with those people? Not our enemies, but our irritants. And the way of the world is there's no place for them in my clique, in my social group. I, I, I want to spend time with the people who bless my life and whose lives I bless, not somebody who's a constant irritation to me. But this passage calls and says, oh, okay, is there room in your life for the people that society has decided are throwaways? And those people are pulled towards communities of faith and people who will see them as worthy of love, uh, even though they know little about how to receive it or give it. Um, and that's where I think the, the Sermon on the Mount becomes a church project. Because when one person attempts to, to, to be a beacon of love, to the irritants in our world, it's often overwhelming uh, because they may be pretty needy. But as, uh, as uh, communities of faith, uh, we've got the resources. We've got the ability to, as a group of people, include those that nobody else will include. And the passage does press towards that. It says, okay, we, I want you to think about how God loves his, his indiscriminate giving 
and rain and sunshine to the deserving and the, the undeserving. And uh, when we're thinking about the irritant, we need to see ourselves because we have to be really irritating to God sometimes. And here's this relentless love of God in Jesus Christ that is not only reaching to us, it's trying to enable us to be a conduit for that same love uh, for somebody else. Um, often the question is, what does this passage mean towards political theory? And I will more or less pass on that, uh, it, except to say that uh, um, we have to start living it out in ways small before we can ever hope to achieve anything great. And it does rewrite the world. It rewrite, rewrites how we understand our relationships uh, to one another and, and to those who aren't members of our group. It, it radically reshapes the way we see the world. And so I want to close with, with that reflection that the Sermon on the Mount is, first of all, about how you see things. What do you see when you look at X, Y, Z? And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that we, uh, we don't have a lot of control over our first reaction to something. Our, our, we have this emotional uh, reaction uh, to things, maybe anger, maybe joy, maybe love that, that initial reaction we don't have much choice about. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is about the second moment. It, it's about what you do when you pause and say, okay, now what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ in this situation? Uh, what do I now do? Because I'll remind you at the end of the sermon, the emphasis is not on understanding the sermon, the emphasis is on doing it. The person who hears these sayings of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man. It's not about understanding this wisdomism. It's about practice. So I want to encourage you in this uh, time where I'm leaning towards Thanksgiving, you're reflecting back on it as you uh, listen uh, to this. Um, it may not, it's probably not picking an Iraqi dentist, but is what is one little thing you can do to lean into loving those who aren't just part of your own clan or group? How do I love someone that may even be hostile to me? And it is those small acts that, that, that turn into a, a, a tidal wave and an ocean of love, um, even though in our little world it, it may just be a few drops. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me into your community uh, for a few minutes. I assure you I'm greatly honored. I have, um, over the last... 20 years, always closed out my, my sermons or lessons wherever I am uh, with a blessing. They're a combination of the Hebrew Bible, uh, the closing of the book of Jude, and some old monastic practice. And I would like to offer this blessing to you as I close. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace.
to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore, world without end. Amen.